In a world of podcasts about movies, sci-fi, TV, and podcasts about sci-fi, TV, and movies, two women chose to add their voices to the fray. Two sisters. One woman was willing to go to any length to explain away plot holes and bad pacing. I don't think, first of all, much like the entirety of this film, I don't think we're supposed to ask a lot of questions. The other, though, had no such sympathies. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Together, they joined forces to highlight the good, the bad, and the truly bizarre. This is See You Next Week in Space. All right. So uh, I think uh, rather than one of our more traditional uh, questions to open up today, Amy, I think really what everyone wants to know, what the question on all of our listeners' mind is, did you watch Fart the Movie? And what did you think (laughs) of it? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, I did. However, I will... Always like to be fully transparent. I watched and could only get through about 15 minutes of oh, it. Oh, so it wasn't very good, you're um, saying. It wasn't cinematic gold. Really? <laughs> if you can believe I, it. I'm struggling shocking, to imagine that it wouldn't deliver on its promise of being well, a movie. It did sort of deliver. I, 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 like, I to guess. be clear. <laughs> To be clear, it sort of did deliver mm. what I was expecting. Mm. I just realized, like, I couldn't sit through 90 minutes of it. <laughs> um, because, like, it, it did make me, like, have some, like, very overwhelming laughs, like, in that for 15 minutes. Got it. Um, just, like, the, op- the opening scene is just a credit sequence where he is farting all over town. And it was... Quite funny. And I mean, ridiculous, when you but say like quite funny. Farting all over town, like he's in an elevator. He's in an elevator, and like you hear a fart noise, or I don't actually even know if you hear the noise, but you like see people's reactions to like a bad smell. He's on the street, and like you see people's reaction as he passes. Oh, like, so is this just, just this is opening credit? So there's is there like some kind of sound? It's it's like montage. Is there a sound? Yeah, it's like montage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe montage isn't the right word, but like it's, um, you know, like a credit sequence, like where they're showing someone like getting up and going to work and it's all, it's like the credits are rolling, but there's music over the top of it. And they're like walking down the streets of New York with their like sneakers on and their like power suit. Okay. (laughs) It's like that, except it's like that, except for it's like the end of his day. He's walking around town farting on everyone. And, um, but we, but so there's, but just to clarify, is there ever a sound of a fart that comes out? There is. Okay. Yes. Yes. I can't remember in the, I can't remember in the opening sequence if they're doing it or if it's just, we're, we're just imagining it because of the faces. But I think there's noises because I think I was like, (laughs) what is happening? Um, and then it it goes downhill pretty quick once like the music dies out and it's like we're going into like full scenes that gets a bit like no I have I a hard time doing believing here. that 
it's it gets it gets tough real fast um because the sound it's also poorly done I see. like it's i don't know it's, i'm oh shocked no, that I they don't actually have good sound quality in <laughs> i mean the farts sound good but everything else is a little bit like tinny just like the yeah, it's low budge. It's definitely like a little bit blur. It was like a little bit blurry on my TV, and I don't think it was my TV. Okay. And um, the only thing I regret that I did mean to do was go back because we uh, we found out that Kesha was oh, in it as a kid, right. and I did want to go back and see how that played into it. But it it, it, it it's hard to watch. <laughs> it's hard to watch. <laughs> it the acting is um. You know, it's not their fault. I think the material is is tough to play. Yeah, but one like, would imagine so. I mean, it's like when I tell you that, like, if I was ever in Hollywood and like offered a movie, like that, I would not be particular. I mean that, like, <laughs> I would be in probably pretty much anything. This one would be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> like this yeah. one would be. I get. Wait, does um, especially also as the farting important guy. question? Did you have to pay to watch this film? No, okay, no, no, no. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. It was on. I think it was on Tubi, which okay. is like the also lowest the most, hanging like, fruit of this uh, janky <laughs> streaming world. <laughs> Like it's, I don't think you're gonna find this like on a Netflix or anything like that. It was on Tubi, but like, yeah, I don't really recommend if you want to check out the first 10, 15 minutes if you can get through it. Like, it's yeah, so that it's a yeah, lot. Yeah, so the reason you had to give it up after 15 minutes was one, just general production value was low. Yes, and I just realized like it wasn't entertaining enough because like also were the fart we jokes not even clever. Int- no, oh no, is there's no clever happening because it wasn't a fart joke. This is what like <laughs> there wasn't like it was him just farting. Like it was just uh. this guy. Like the premise is this guy just likes to fart. Okay. He likes to sit around eat eat foods that make him fart and fart. And, like, to the point where his wife is, like, can we please go out for a meal. New Year's Eve? And he's, like, no, I want to stay home and fart. That's like, so, <laughs> I'm not kidding. This, that's, like, what this, this sounds that's like. an episode like of My Strange Addiction or something. Like. It sort of is. It could be. <laughs> Maybe they pulled it from that. I just, I mean. But, like. I I don't oof I would have trouble with this also because I think I've maybe mentioned this on the show but certainly in real life I'd struggle to find bathroom humor funny. Um, See the thing is it has to be really really clever and if you can do like a good like it can't I okay listen <laughs> I am not a highbrow humor person I I like a fart joke I like a poop joke like I'm lowbrow all the way potty humor like I don't mind it. But this, like, there is a there is a limit, yeah. and there is a line, and this this just wasn't funny. This was just like this man is just kind of gross, like, and the wife was just like pleading with him, oh and I'm like, why are what is what is happening? Like, why do you even want to go out with this man? Like, yeah, d- that's another. And her her acting was weird. Like, it was just all that's weird. A, the other question is like, did this farting obsession? 
appear after you were married and you couldn't get out? <laughs> um, well, she, I mean, it's like she sort of, she doesn't seem like she hates it that much. I'll be honest. Like she, when he comes home from work, she like, <laughs> there were like some funny bits. Like she had this entire drawer of like air freshener that she just like pulled out and was like, Ehh. oh um, my God. But she's just like lives with this like fucking. Yeah beast of a man and like that's it's just true that's like i mean it's like a disease like it sounded like he had like a gaseous disease although if he's like it would be one thing if the premise were like he somehow can't control it and like i guess then we would feel bad for him or something um maybe we learn more about it after the first 15 minutes i didn't give it like the best shot but like I was not seeing any explanation other than like, eh, I'm a little bit, I'm gassy and I like it. Like that and was that's, what I, and that's, <laughs> that's how that's I read perverse it. perverse too, because like whenever you're really gassy, <laughs> it's usually not a pleasant sensation. <laughs> like, um, No, it's super painful. Especially, I mean, I'm just mystified by this movie. The more you discuss But I it. guess what's painful about what it's... <laughs> What's painful about gas, actually, I guess, is, like, holding it well, in. Well, sure. But if you're just letting it fly, maybe it is fun. I, mean, I don't this know. Is but weird. like, This is a weird movie. It's very weird. Oh, my God. I... It wasn't... I wanted it to be a lot funnier than it was. Like, yes. I wanted... Like, it was... It was kooky, and I wanted it to go with, like, the same energy as the... Um, like opening scene i almost didn't even need real scenes oh like just like show us (laughs) fart guy around town like yeah kind of or just like make it be more like a skit or like i mean i guess that's like (laughs) the thing of it too is like yeah this is the the short form it's better in a short form like if if the whole (laughs) movie were 15 minutes maybe it would be great yes if it was just like Yes, it could have been comedy gold. Who knows? But <laughs> they, they took it too far. <laughs> I am so glad that not only did you take the time to watch some of that film. Uh, that Yes, I took one for the yes, team. and that you've shared it with us. And now, I guess, like, listeners, <laughs> um, if you want, check it out. Fart the movie. Do what you... <laughs> I mean, I am not going to recommend oh, it, no. but I'm also not going to not recommend it. So I am going to say, use your free will and yeah. you do you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> great. This is an excellent opening to see you next week in space. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm Sarah Walsh. I'm here with my sister and co-host and um, recently traumatized uh, Amy Walsh. <laughs> Uh, so Amy, uh, what are we talking about this week? And it's not fart related. Yeah, unfortunately, um, (laughs) we are talking about (laughs) a movie from 1956 called Forbidden Planet. Indeed. And I know nothing else about it, basically. Uh, well, I mean, now in fairness to our listeners and transparency, we had to do a bit of rejigging so that we could squeeze in some Halloween episodes because I misplanned some things. So neither one of us have seen this movie in rather a while at this point. Um, yes. And also transparency admission number three of the episode <laughs> I didn't like it three weeks ago or whenever yeah. I watched it and, and like barely like, you know, had much to grasp onto then. It is now fully erased yeah. from my brain. So this shall be yeah, interesting. Yeah, I figured it was. Um, but 
And I didn't revisit it because no. you know what? I was like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck it. No, I didn't revisit it either, but I I have my notes here, my handwritten ones, my outline. I think it'll help jog my memory, which in turn may help jog your yeah. memory. Um so Hopefully. I will say uh, that we'll talk about this in a bit, that this is kind of one of the classics of the sci-fi genre, um, particularly of the early days of like movie science fiction. Mm. Um, so the IMDb description of this movie is, a starship crew in the 23rd century goes to investigate the silence of a distant planet's colony, only to find just two survivors, a powerful robot, and the deadly secret of a lost civilization. Um, and all of that is true. The mm. movie is about that. Um, but huh. you sound puzzled already. You're like, is that what it was about? <laughs> I'm not sure if that's what I watched, but okay. Um, so in terms of how this kind of stands up or stacks up in the realm of science fiction as kind of movie fodder, um, this is the setting or like quite a lot of the concepts, uh, explored here get very much more brought into the realm of normal mainstream fiction in Star Trek, the original series. Um, so also just like, it gave me a lot of yes, Star Trek it vibes. It was really I'll say. quite a lot. And especially, um, I don't imagine you would be one of these people, but among our listeners, those of you who are familiar with original series Star Trek, this is, it's almost as though you're watching a long episode of that in many ways. Okay, okay, ding, 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 and why it was not for me. <laughs> yes. Because it was like a long episode of yes, Star Trek. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, also, but interesting that you may more prefer because of interest in the theater, this is also an extremely loose adaptation of The Tempest. Hmm. Did you get? Now, I don't know. I don't know the tempest very well and i don't recall what the basic premise uh, of it well is. the basic premise of the tempest uh shakespeare's final play uh is about a man and his daughter who have gotten marooned on a desert island well not desert but like on an island as, after a shipwreck and they oh really yes <laughs> I may, I maybe have never read and or seen The Tempest. That doesn't even ring a bell. Yeah. For me. So the the dad is called Prospero and the daughter's called Miranda, and I think that's right. Mm. Anyway, um, and let me just double check because the internet can be cruel. Uh, let's just the Shakespearean people are gonna be after Ooh, you. I mean, well, after I just said I've never read it or seen it, so I think you're good. Uh. Miranda, I was right. Yes. Um, so basically they live on this island with um, two different kind of um, helpers, let's say, that are born. So Prospero's a magician is also the thing. And he creates these, one is a spirit called Ariel and another is like a troll type thing called Caliban. And I guess both of them, hmm. you could find a parallel in that robot that they have in this one. Um, mm. And so so that too is also quite Star Trekian um, to because they yeah. often reference Shakespeare in particular quite a lot, um, especially mm -hmm. in the next generation. So anyway, the... Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. 
So in terms of where this, how this kind of, we can see that trajectory, particularly in its influence on Star Trek, but not only that, is that this is the first representation of humans um, in faster than light uh, spaceships that are made by humans rather than like we've gotten technology from some other kind of alien and are traveling. This is the premise that humans mm. figure this out themselves. So that's the first time we see this mm. car- uh, depicted. Um, this is also the first okay. entire movie that takes place on another planet outside of our solar system. Um, so Altair 4, uh, where this movie takes place, is way, way, way out of our galaxy. And that's, um, or no, or certainly out of our solar system anyway, not out of our galaxy, excuse me. Um, and so that's... I was going to say, come and on. And that's an, a new thing that's not been shown before. Okay. Um, similarly, uh, Robbie the Robot, who we'll talk a bit about shortly, um has its own personality and that personality Mm -hmm. and its role in the story are a a supporting character. This isn't just some like bit on the side of like, Oh, we're going to show that they've got a robot. Like Robbie actually is its own kind of entity with its own motivations. Um, Hmm. And that was, this was, that was, this was the first first time time that was happening. This was the first time such a thing Mm. was portrayed on screen. Um, the Hmm. other thing that I actually found really fascinating because I was really like, oftentimes the musical score I found was almost intrusive in its weirdness and its volume. Mm. Um, and Mm. that's one of the other firsts that this is an entirely electronic musical score. Um, Hmm. and it's made by a husband and wife team called BB and Louie Barron who are the pioneers of American electronic music. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so they, unsurprisingly, they met in Greenwich Village (laughs) at some point. Okay. And I guess, like, um, I don't remember this as well anymore, but basically uh, they got very, both of them had various kind of backgrounds in music, and then they started Mm -hmm. experimenting with different types of ways that you can, and this is also really interesting. So electronic music um, as made originally was a very laborious process of physically modifying things like cutting, um, not even cassette tapes, but like, and not even eight tracks, things that preceded those. uh, And like cutting them in different ways physically and then putting them back together in other ways um, and then recording the sound of one thing onto another thing and like um, Mm. also things like using theremins and stuff like that. Um, So they, to make these sounds, which now would just be like, I press this button and here we go. I got it. You know, like this, I have to imagine this, this score took them quite a while to actually make. Um, well, I like, I guess I'm sort of, then I I feel like I could have a lot of follow-ups on electronic, electronic music, but we don't have to like go deeply down that path. But I wonder if then, if they were like the first ones to like make these sounds, do the sounds that are in like electronica now 
Are they are those sounds like copyrighted? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose that's one of or they just differ. They're like, or or they're just like yeah, not the same exact sounds. They're yeah. just like yeah. replicating th- like an idea. I think my understanding of when you're talking about intellectual property law, mm-hmm. music as a subset of that is really challenging. Um, to, pr- yeah. to prove that you've got, I think it's especially challenging to prove that you've got an original idea. Like, so yeah. I was just listening to a different podcast about music. And one of the things that increasingly has happened is that, you know, a really famous musician or group or artist will like write a song. It comes out on the radio. And then some other really like small time person is like, that's my riff. That's That's my my song. That's my chord progression. That's my this, that, or the other. Yep. And whether or not the big name person intentionally took that or not, and and that actually isn't even... That's very hard to prove. Well, it's hard to prove, and it also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether there was an intention or not. If it turns out to be that somebody else did it first, then you have to pay them rights anyway. Like, it just doesn't matter. You know, like... Um, and, and that's the whole thing is like quite a lot of big name stars have actively tried to say like, no, I came up with this on my own. And typically the court is like, I don't care. It's still quite obviously this other person's thing. And their thing was released in 1974 and your thing was released, you know, a month ago. So, so they, they have, they get the proceeds from that to some degree, you know? So, but music is Mm -hmm. a uniquely, I think, difficult um, kind of yeah. section of intellectual property because there's only so many notes that a person can play. <laughs> like, um, well, and, well, and certain, and especially like chord progressions right, too. Right. Like, and that is very, yeah. And that is sometimes the argument that big name people make is like, well, you know, I would only ever, and it's like, yeah, but there are other bands and people who have never been in court for this. So there's yeah. still clearly I mean, I think that, like, new w- stuff you could do. <laughs> <laughs> one of the famous ones was uh I think it was um the Michael Jackson song um Under Pressure and then I what is uh Well no David Bowie yeah. I think Vanilla That's, Ice Under Pressure is a David Bowie oh. song. Oh, oh but right, yes. right. But it's yeah. like dun 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 da 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 right. that yes. one. And Vanilla Ice was like, no no no, mine's different. It's dun 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 yeah. dun da 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 Yeah. Um, and I think I think he might have won. I don't know. No, he didn't. <laughs> he absolutely did. Oh, he didn't. No. Okay. Um, but he did try to argue, like, no, it's a little right. different. And, but and the, but generally, it's just a hard thing to do. So I'm not sure that. Yeah. I don't think you can necessarily copyright a sound and say we did this and this is ours. This is my so anytime <laughs> someone uses this going yeah. forward, you've got to pay me. I, I think there probably are some things yeah. like that, but generally. It would be quite difficult to prove that and to make it work. Um, The other thing that's interesting, I thought, is that the Robbie the Robot costume was um, possibly one of the most expensive film props at the time, clocking in at, um, in 1955 bucks, $125,000. Um, which, yeah, which was 7% of the film's entire budget. 
Um, Yikes. <laughs> yeah. So they spent quite a lot of money on that. Um, and so... Was there a human inside there that? There was a human inside that, and we'll talk about it soon. Um, okay. So unsurprisingly, um, when this came out, it was nominated for a visual effects Oscar, which I don't believe that it did end up winning, but it's still... Uh, this is So this is not only kind of important in terms of the science fiction concepts that it pioneers. Um, it's also very much um, a set point for the look, the production value, um, the all of that stuff. Quite a lot of set points get made in this movie that are going to be built upon ever since, basically. Um, hmm. One of the other things that, and kind of you physically see that impact because actually a lot of the costumes and sets from this movie were used in episodes of The Twilight Zone afterward. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Um, so we see kind of like the conceptual impact of this movie as well as the literal like usage of things from this movie hmm. uh, going forward. Uh, so That's funny. In terms of the cast, uh, this is a movie that I often quite like because there's hardly any cast uh, to speak of. Love that. Uh, the main, well, one of the main characters is Dr. Morbius. He is the Prospero-like man. Um, and this is played by a 59-year-old Walter Pigeon, um, who began his life uh, by studying voice at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. Um, hmm. oh, look at that. Yeah, and I actually felt like, um, I don't know if I've ever heard him sing before, um, but he did do musicals and theater early on. But I th- did feel like he had one of those voices that I don't think you hear as much now in modern f- films or TV. Like he has such like that resonant, sonorous voice, you know, like um, mm. that I I really I don't recall, but I believe <laughs> uh, it's just like I don't know. I like I said, the only way I can describe it is that it's the type of thing that you don't really see anymore. And it's the reason why people mm-hmm. like James Earl Jones and Morgan Freeman get mm. held up as like these real examples of like, this is an excellent voice. He's kind of in that realm yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, I mean, he's old enough and based on where in time he is, he also did some silent movies. Um, the way that I, I didn't recognize him in this movie, but I now realize I had seen him before because he plays Mr. Ziegfeld in Funny Girl. Oh. Yeah, the movie Funny Girl. Also, I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. Yeah, yeah. um, He also, um, to a certain type of audience, he would have been very familiar. Um, I think, I can't remember. I think this was before this movie. He was in um, a movie called How Green Was My Valley, which was a big hit um, back in the day. Um, Hmm. In terms of some other films that I thought like I might want to watch. He was in something called mm-hmm. Sky Murder. <laughs> which love that. Which I really would be curious to know what that means. Um yep. Next we have his daughter. The character's name is Altera Morbius and this is played by a 26-year-old Anne Francis. Um Anne Francis was also in Funny Girl, the movie. Um she she huh. plays a Zigfield girl. She her character's name is Georgia James. Um, you like, there's no real reason that name should be much of anything because she barely she only has like a couple scenes in that movie. 
Um, but mm. she, uh, I felt she was one of those people where I kept thought, thinking I was recognizing her. And then when I looked at her credits, I was like, none of this is really ringing any bells with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, she seemed like one of those just like very classically like pretty fifties yeah. girls, yeah. you know? Um, in her case, she is, I would say also kind of a, a, mo- a mold of a, um, celebrity or working actor of that day that kind of has been updated since, but she began modeling when she was six years old. Um, Mm. and then she was on Broadway in her first role by the, by the age of 11. Um, and in Mm. that day and time, there was something known as the New York professional children's school. Um, and that sounds both intriguing and terrifying. I know. At the same I time. have to assume that what it was is it was a school that was for kids who worked on Broadway, you know, like oh, um, yeah, or or other similar types because it's like professional children. I don't know much that a kid yeah. could be a professional at, other than some kind of show business yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But so, and this maybe like could they? Oh, I guess that would be considered like child labor if it was anything like house cleaning yeah 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 no because I I can't remember if we did talk about this or not but we I think we've maybe sometimes touched on the fact that um the child labor laws coming out of the entertainment industry um are some of the strictest and attending school is a major component of them and has been for rather a while actually um, so yes. I, even if it's just like a tutor on right. set or whatever, so this, I have to imagine was some kind of like, well, we'll actually have a real yeah, school it's probably. and the kids can go and whatever. Um, yeah. she is also in a movie that sounds intriguing called Mongo's back in town. <laughs> and I don't know what that wow. <laughs> would be, but seems interesting. Um, yeah. Then we have a very uh young almost unrecognizable Leslie Nielsen fully unrecognizable in my of world 30 playing commander Adams um most of us probably know who Leslie Nielsen is if you've seen any of the naked gun movies or airplane um and we've talked about him before i think because he was in the Poseidon event- oh, really? adventure um, oh, I forgot that. Yeah, but uh, what I didn't, I don't think I mentioned in the last time we spoke about him, is that he's Canadian, and then one of his brothers was the deputy prime minister there at one time, which is kind of intriguing. Really? Yeah. Um, in hmm. terms of where this movie falls in his career, this is probably his first kind of bigger role, where he's like a main protagonist in the story. Yeah, I- and I definitely, like, you had to tell me he was in this, and then I was like, oh, because I was watching it, and I was like, that guy is familiar, but, you know, I don't know actors from the 50s, so right. whatever. And when you said that, I was like, holy crap, I never knew he had anything but white well, hair. Well, yeah, he's got dark hair in this movie, and because it's 1956, it's very pomaded, which always makes hair look even darker in my mind. Um, yeah, and I just had never seen him in a, like, romantic lead type of, like, debonair. He's always, like, 
a goofball. Well, even in Naked... In the things I had seen. Yeah, in Naked Gun, he often will have a love interest, but that's just fodder for more comedic performance. Yeah. Um, this is... He's he's yes. seriously, like, the love interest of Altair. Yeah. Um, yeah. I... Because I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, ooh, when is he going to show up? And then he did, and I was like, oh, his voice is totally the same, but he's, like, so much younger mm. in this movie. Yeah. Um... Then next, rounding things out, we have Lieutenant Doc Ostro, played by a 37-year-old Warren Stevens. Um, he is similar to a number of actors we've spoken about from this era. He served in the Navy during World War II and then got into acting afterwards. His first credit was in 1948. Um, and he eventually went on to be one of the main characters in the kind of Primetime soap, Peyton Place. Uh, I think that was in the 60s or 70s, that movie, or not movie, that show was on. Mm. Um, but he, too, uh, has participated in interesting films such as Gorilla at Large. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's so much great stuff that I'm just like, what is this? Um, and finally, <laughs> we have the character of Robbie the Robot, um, he was maybe a year old, I guess you could say, by the time this movie came out. Um, and he's actually, that construction was made by a guy named Robert Kinoshita. Um, and then, so that's like a, uh, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Like a costume that a person goes into. Um, mm-hmm. and... It's a very challenging uh, mechanism to operate. So that actually made it, ra- it mm. so it's difficult um, and made shooting rather challenging. Um, intriguingly, Robbie the Robot, this is his introductory film, but he is an actor in his own right. And I shouldn't say he, it, because he specifically, it specifically says it has no gender and gender means nothing to it. In this movie, it says that. <laughs> um so it has I didn't even remember that. It has gone on to star or well to have 30 credits on IMDb as Robbie the robot. Um not ever but as the person who's inside no, it. Only as Robbie the robot. Robbie oh. the robot became a celebrity of sorts. Um wow. So it appeared in the Twilight Zone, Wonder it's Woman. It's kind of like Barney. Yeah. Twilight Zone, Wonder Woman, Mork and Mindy. Apparently it was in Gremlins, um, Earth Girls Are Easy, and most recently in an episode of Big Bang Theory. All the way up into Big Bang Theory. I wow. I know. So very good That's career. Wild. Very good career for that prop. <laughs> I'm a little bit pissed, but I'll try to let it go. <laughs> Um, so that's all we need to know in terms of who is important to this movie and what are we going to be doing. So um, as per usual, when it comes to the opening of a science fiction film, uh, in this case, rather than title cards, the producers have opted for a voiceover explanation and setting of the scene. So do you want to read the opening voiceover information oh sure i didn't even remember this happening but um 
In the final decade of the 21st century, men and women in rocket ships landed on the moon. By 2200, wow, I can't even read it. By 2200 AD, they had reached the other planets of our solar system. Almost at once, there followed the discovery of hyperdrive through which the speed of light was first attained and later greatly surpassed. And so, at last, mankind began, began wow, the conquest and colonization of deep space. Colonization? I know. Hmm. United Planets cruiser C-57D, now more than a year out from Earth base on a special mission to the planetary system of the great main sequence star, Altair, C-57D. That is a whole bunch of gobbledygook. <laughs> Clearly, I couldn't even read it. Um, <laughs> so that is where they are going. We, we have learned that um, at the very least, this is after 2200, the year. Like, it's got to be after that. Yeah. Um, we know that there's a United Planets, um, some sort of group that is sending out these... Uh, spaceships. We don't know what planets are united, mm-hmm. of course, and that's never addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are somewhere outside of our own solar system and perhaps very far out indeed, though we don't know for sure. So mm-hmm. then we actually go into uh, ship C-57D. Um, and... It's a terrible name for a ship, I'm just going to say. Well, yeah, they don't have the naming quite down yet, which is something that Star Trek changes, that they call it the Enterprise, rather than its um, identifying number. Like the, uh, like the serial number on the side yeah, of the damn ship. Yeah, because that's NCC-1705. Uh, that's the original. What? <laughs> What is happening? Wait, 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 wait. You know the serial number of the ship from Star Trek? Yes. Oh, <laughs> you are a nerd. <laughs> it's like um, a very well-known uh, thing. Oh, sorry. I said it wrong. It's NCC-1701, not 1705. Excuse me. How dare um, you? I mean... To say that that's well known is hilarious. <laughs> it is well known. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess knowledge is relative. Things that I find to be common knowledge are definitely not common, and I guess you know, same for others. But that I wouldn't say. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't say everybody knows that If you're a Star Trek person, you do know that information. And for that reason, I apologize, Trekkers, for saying 1705 <laughs> rather than 1701. They're pissed, and they're writing letters. Uh, well, good thing, because letters don't come to Australia for weeks, so I'll be fine. <laughs> um, but in this case, we have C-57D, and we see the crew swirling around, Um And Commander Adams, a.k.a. Leslie Nielsen, uh, tells the crew that they're three minutes out from arriving at Altair. Um, I looked it up. Altair is the name of a real star. Um, But I don't necessarily know if that real star system... I don't even know if it's actually a star system. So, like, um, by that Mm. I mean star systems are like... um, Or a star has planets... 
orbiting around it, like our own, uh, you know, okay. solar system. So I don't know if Altair, mm-hmm. the real one, has that. But in the movie, that's what it is. And so... Okay. So then as they're preparing to decelerate, what they have to do is... Because they're coming out of hyperspeed, basically. And so they have to stand in what will eventually become transporter pads in Star Trek. Um, but at the time, they're, like, they stand on these little like circles where then... Um, as the deceleration from hyperspeed to normal speed happens, they have to stand in this special like beam of light um, because I get I, it's unclear what would happen if you didn't stand in them, but um, probably nothing good, I guess. Um, when they, as they come out of that, we learn that the crew has been sent on a rescue mission for a ship that went missing. 20 years before. The ship is known as the Bellerophon. Um, Why are you laughing? Just the words that are made up in sci-fi things are, like, very silly. Well, Bellerophon is a character from Greek myths, so it's not entirely made up. Um, Well, the Greeks have funny names, too. They do. Like Xerxes and stuff. Um, yeah. So as they're scanning the planet, uh, they find that there are no structures on the planet. There doesn't seem to be any indication that the crew survived over these 20 years. Um, and then, uh, but they, but then eventually they find a radio signal, uh, from mm-hmm. Morbius's location. In this version, though, Morbius, they find this radio signal, so they send a message to him. And he's basically like, don't land here. Um, this this area is dangerous. Um, the people you came to save aren't here anymore. Like, you're best to just leave. And Commander Adams is like, well, that's not really what we've been ordered to do, so we really need to come and speak to you in person. And so he gives them the coordinates Mm -hmm. of his home. They land on the surface of this planet. um, And this too really looks a lot like the original kind of um, set pieces for Star Trek of what different planets would look like. I can't remember now, but I feel as though, like I think the sky is like purple um, you know, and you can, they all sort of look like all these planets that I've seen in like this time period or like Star trek things all kind of look like, um, the Southwest. Yes. Lots me. of desert. <laughs> look like yes. Arizona. Yes. It's like Arizona, Utah, like those like red rocks. Yeah. Like, yeah. And this one too, I could tell that the set, I mean, I really like this because I, we've talked about practical effects and I guess I'm just old that I like some of this stuff I'm like it looks not real but I do like when it's like a set where the background is a painting of a landscape and they're all kind of like standing in front of it in various ways like you like I do I do when it's done well which I thought this was like um there was something about it that like you liked when that like superimposed tiger came through oh that was less good 
Um, <laughs> but this part I liked. Um, okay. So they're disembarking from the ship, and as they're doing that, this big dust cloud is blowing up in the distance, and it Robbie the robot appears driving some weird like space car. Um, <laughs> and for some reason, it's like one of it introduces itself to them and says basically that he's been sent to take them to Morbius's home. Um, and I can't remember which of the crew asks this, but it's like one of the first questions, I guess because they've never seen artificial life before. They're like, well, are you male or female? And Robbie responds with, for me, that's totally without meaning. The, the totally without meaning is a direct quote. Great. Um, so interesting. Uh, we don't really linger on that for any particular length of time. Um, but I think it's always interesting to see how gender is navigated or not when it comes to, um, machinery, right. Or artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is one example of that. Um, I like it. Yeah. And I mean, again, a lot of them start falling into calling Robbie he, um, which, It doesn't really surprise me for a number of reasons. Um, but I think yeah. mostly because people, and as you. Well, we've. Well, I think like human nature has gendered certain things, right? Like robots equal men, sort of. Or eh, it depends he, on the robot. Like other weird. I guess, but like people call boats, boats are all she's for some reason, and cars tend to be she's a lot of times. I mean, obviously they're not, but that's like whatever, like, it is is strange how certain things have become gendered gendered in our culture. Well, and I also think even what I was going to say even beyond that is like once something has sentience, even if it's not human level sentience, it feels really uncomfortable for humans to ref- to say to it, say it. Um, you yeah. know, like I wouldn't even say that about a dog, you know, or like I wouldn't call a no. dog it. Um, and and no one ever does. Right. Like no one's like, what's you know, if they see my dog on the street, they're not like, what's its name? Right. Uh, maybe maybe they do. sometimes, but, like, but it's more often you might say they might just gender it straight away, or if they don't, they say what's their yes. name. Um, yeah, you know, but the idea that you would call a live, seemingly a living object, however it's living, as it yeah. is really very much anathema to human beings to do. Yeah, and so I think that's why they kind of fall into calling Robbie he, um, because yeah. it's like I mean this this is a living entity. It is very smart. <laughs> it like can do all this yeah. crazy stuff. So the idea that we're just going to refer to it as it. Is really strange. And actually, I'm remembering... It does seem strange. I'm remembering now that that was also what they did in Enemy Mine. Um, the genderless character in that oh, yeah. was also referred to as it when pronouns were being used. Um, and I was hmm, just like... I forgot that. Weird. <laughs> um, yeah, that is weird. Anyway, Robbie takes them to the Morbius home... Um, Morbius greets them, but is very unhappy about their arrival. Um, and it's not clear yet why this is so. 
Um, and so the crew, mm-hmm. he like, but he's still a good host, apparently. He hasn't had a guest in 20 years. So mm-hmm. he invites them to lunch, which they have. And this is when we learn that Robbie can create any type of material as soon as it learns like the kind of chemical molecular structure of anything. So you can like Mm. program up like this is what an apple's like. And then he can shoot out an apple from his internal little shelf thing or whatever. Um, Love that. Yeah, he also makes Altera a dress later on in the movie, which is quite lovely. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, And then Morbius also indicates that Robbie has been programmed not to harm intelligent life, which again... This is something that we see when it comes to uh, artificial life, um, cyborgs, robots, uh, androids, whatever you want to call them. This is always a a fundamental Mm -hmm. tenet of their programming is that they're not going to harm human beings. Um, Morbius also, in the process of kind of showing them how Robbie works, uh, says that he is the one who made Robbie. Um, and this surprises Commander Adams, a.k.a. Leslie Nielsen, because the records that they have about Morbius is that he's a philologist. He has no background in... I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Did you say a philologist? A philologist. And that's not someone who studies the lives of somebody named Phil. It should be. It should be you are you are an expert on anything and everything Phil related. Is now wait here's my guess. Philologist is someone who studies the the mixture of philosophy and biology. That is an interesting and good guess based on the different word roots that you've chosen. And intriguingly, because you chose word roots to make your assumption. That is something that a philologist would do um, because philology is the study of the history of languages, specifically looking at how languages change over time. Um, Hmm. And often this is done through an examination of literature, uh, but not exclusively so. Um, And that differs from, we don't have to get into the nitty-gritty but and that differs from a linguist no it is a branch of linguistics a branch okay okay okay. um so that's what his area of expertise is so certainly it doesn't suggest that he could build a very sophisticated robot um (laughs) but he but morbius is kind of cagey about that um once uh lunch is over the members of the crew of the C-57D start asking, like, okay, so we've come here because, you know, there was this group of colonists who went out here. We never heard anything from them. Uh, We've been sent kind of, if not on an actual rescue mission, certainly on a fact-finding mission to determine what has happened to these people. And Mm -hmm. Morbius uh, has the rather sad duty of explaining that the rest of the crew died um, at, over like the first months of arriving on the planet, um, with the exception of him and his wife. Um, 
it turns out like oh on the journey to this new planet morbius and one of the other colonists get married uh and the two of them according to morbius seemed to be immune to whatever was killing the rest of the colonists um and mm. he doesn't say I don't think he does anyway. He none of they weren't sure what the problem was. You know, like whether was it a disease? Yeah. Was it something else? Was it an animal? Unclear. But what was clear is people kept dropping dead, and they weren't dead. Yikes! Yeah, not good. Um, no. And then they're like, "Well, okay, so you're still here, but like, where's your wife?" And he's like, "Well, I'm happy to say she died of natural causes sometime later." Um, and it seems as though, uh, like, oh, that's what he says. Um, he says that the survivors were ripped apart by some kind of mysterious force. So they didn't, it wasn't even a disease. Yeah. Bad. Bad. Can really bad. Can you imagine seeing someone being torn to shreds just in midair? Like with nothing. And like the, and like the perpetrator or whatever is invisible. Right. Yeah, no, horrifying. That would be so terrifying. There should be, surely there's some horror movie that depicts something like that. Um, there could be some, I mean, actually the fact that these two people still have the ability to communicate is mind blowing. <laughs> That's true. I think I would go into, if I witnessed like everyone except for like one other person. Right. Like die that way. First of all, you know, I'm not sure I would survive it. But if I did, I would be catatonic. Yeah. I think. Oh, it would be <laughs> extremely traumatic. Like everything about this sounds bad. Like I, I can't remember yeah. if they intended to be on this planet or if they like crash landed and that was already one issue. And then they're there, and however many colonists there are, it was unclear to me precisely how many people came on this initial trip but like and and they today they i forget if you said they did they explain like their ship or whatever is broken they can't right leave? they can't leave um okay so then like you're stuck on this planet people are being ripped to shreds before your eyes seemingly <laughs> by the air itself um and you're and somehow you and your wife are fine and then eventually it's just the two of you left alone and and there's no hope of anyone showing up and then this is the other thing that this is part of the reason i mean i know i know i would absolutely i would take matters into my own hands you know what i'm saying but like i think that would be i think i would contemplate that rather a lot i don't know if i would do it but yeah. it would be I think I a would consideration. Do it. I think I would do it. If there was if there was no chance of like a rescue or something, like and no one was coming, like there was no what I I wouldn't be able to see the point. I'd I'd struggle to see the point, yeah, I guess I will fair say. Fair enough. Um and what was I oh, and this is oh, so this is the but so similar in a similar vein to that, basically what this is why Morbius didn't want these guys to land because he was like, we never figured out what was wrong, but we know that we were unaffected by it. And so this planet is clearly dangerous for everyone else. So 
weirdly, he was like, my job is to now remain on this planet and ensure that no one else comes. Like, um, and if I were these people that just landed, I would say, that is a very interesting story. I will see you <laughs> never. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs> um, well, I mean, there are some holes in this story, which is what keeps the crew there. Um, what also keeps the mm-hmm. crew there is so, like, Morbius feels like, I've explained, you guys are leaving now, right? And they're like, uh, right. no, we have some follow-up questions. Like, um, <laughs> and also I think they say something like, well, we need to, like, communicate this information back to, like, headquarters so that they can then tell us what they want to do you know like now that this is very much not a rescue mission there might be some other kind of thing we need to do and yeah really what we see morbius is not only trying to rush them off the planet because he thinks it's dangerous for them he clearly is also trying to hide the fact that he has a young daughter his daughter altera who shows up as this lunch is ending um and she's like extremely excited um, because she has never seen men of her own age before. Um, yikes. And let's see. So I guess in the movie she's got, she's probably supposed to be like maybe 18 or 19 years old because the okay. ship went missing 20 years ago. Um, okay. and, although the actress is 26. She's, I think she's meant to be like a late teens yeah. person. Um, yeah. And she's, she, I will say it was kind of fun and funny because as much as these men are like ogling her throughout the film, which they are, um, she is equally like sexually interested in them um, and doesn't hide it at all. She says right away when she meets them, are you representative of all the men on earth? Um, you know, like basically like how <laughs> handsome or not are you strictly speaking? Um, and, and she doesn't hide it. And I did like that. Cause it's like, she's not been raised. I mean, it's not just that it's the future or whatever, which maybe is part of it, but it's like, she's not been raised to be subtle in any way about anything. Um, and certain, yeah, she's never needed to. Right. And she's never. And certainly not when it comes to, like... She's never been, like, burned by a man yet, either. well, true. But, like, and certainly not in matters of romance or sexuality or anything, because it's, like, you're not talking about that with your dad. (laughs) So there's, like... Yeah, yeah. There's no... Or if you are, yikes. No, we can't even think about... I can't even... No, no, no. Um... Well, he was protective. He didn't want them to meet her, so... It's true. A little bit sus. It's true. Um, so... Uh, Morbius then is even more like, okay, so you guys are leaving, right? Like, you you really ought to not only leave my home, but, like, leave this planet. Um, And this is when Leslie Nielsen is like, well, we need to figure out what we're supposed to do with the dead crew. Um, Which, as you'll see in my outline, I'm like, there wasn't already a plan for that? Like, these people have been stranded for 20 years. It seems like there would be... Some kind of... Wait, he's talking about the dead crew that's been dead for 20 right. years? Oh, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I'm like, even under best case scenario situations, which I don't know how being stranded on a planet could be that, but let's say that. If you were being sent on a miss- mission to find out what happened, I have to assume one of the 
instructions you would be given is like, there will be some amount of dead people. This is what you should do with the dead people that you find on this planet. You know, like, um, yeah. and the fact that it's basically all of them, I don't think would necessarily change anything. Um, no. But maybe that's... Because did you think that a lot of them were alive after 20 years also? Right. Well, that's the thing. I'm like, in 20 years, on an inhospitable planet, at least one person's going to be dead by some kind of, I ate a berry that turned out to be poison or, you know, any number of yeah, things. Yeah, something. Um, but maybe this was also just a delay tactic because they were a little bit sus about Morbius, um, which could also be a problem um so then uh we watch as the crew of the c57d start preparing to create like kind of a communications array on the planet so that they can contact headquarters and learn what they're meant to do um and this is when we see altera um in a kind of skeevy way i didn't love this um some guy is like basically convincing her to kiss him um and she's happy to do it in the sense that like she's not she wants the experience right um Mm -hmm. but I thought it was so I did but he was really talking her into it which I didn't like but like what I thought really rounded it out is so she she kisses him and she's kind of like makes a face and it's like I'm not sure so they end up kissing three times in a row and at the end of it, she's like, hmm, I thought you were supposed to feel something. And he was like a little bit, uh, he was a little bit offended, I think, by that, which I like, again, just shows she hasn't been taught to like, you know, treat, lie, to lie or to like treat people's feelings with uh, sensitivity or whatever. So she's just like, no, I don't really feel anything. Um... And as that is wrapping up, uh, Leslie Nielsen shows up. And because he's the captain, he first of all is angry at the crewman because I'm like, he like kind of sends him away and is like, this is not what you're supposed to be doing at all. Um, <laughs> and so he gives him a shout about like, basically you're taking advantage of this person who, who just has no frame of reference for human interaction at all. And so you re- it's really not yeah. appropriate that you're doing this, which I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's Go Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> but then he ruins it because as soon as the guy leaves, he yells at Altera for wearing such short skirts oh. and for kind of like oh, yeah. not knowing her quote-unquote power over these men. And that is something he says like at least twice, I think, in the movie where he's like, these men have been cooped up in the spaceship just with other men for a year. And so they're like extra lascivious and gross. Um, and you're, you know, walking around. That sounds like a them problem, not going to lie. For sure. And also I'm like, there's no reason they couldn't have been having sex that whole year anyway. Um, and there's that. But anyway, so he particularly yells at her about like the the shortness of her skirts, which they were short, like admittedly they were quite short. Um, but nonetheless, uh, that's what happens. Um, and this is what causes Altera to have Robbie make her a new dress, uh, which will be revealed a bit later. 
Um, back at the ship, the two crewmen have been assigned to keeping watch at night, and um, they think they hear some kind of a breathing sound, um, like walking Horrifying. past them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would find more menacing. Probably all of it's bad, but like the sound of someone's footsteps walking by me uh, like and this is the desert so it would be like a crunchy sound like that but I don't see anyone that would be bad but the breathing thing really seems well cuz uh, here's I think breathing okay if I were to choose between the two here's how I would break it down footsteps bad not a fan don't like but breathing to me it'd have to be seems so to indicate close to you. a closeness yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't even hear anyone breathing, like, ever. Or I can't even hear myself <laughs> breathe. Like, well, yeah. I mean, and that's probably just because we've, think like, you, adjusted to it to such a degree. You're lucky. That, like, I feel, yeah, well, yeah, but you're also lucky because that means you don't know anybody who, like, breathes, like, a mouth as breather. a mouth breather or anything <laughs> like that because it is, it is very bad. Um, but even... But to hear, but to hear it, like, I can't remember you saying, are they, they're not sleeping. No, they're standing outside the ship. Like everyone else on the crew is inside sleeping because it's nighttime. And so they've been assigned to do a watch in the night. And so they're just standing out, kind of like staring out at the. And to just hear disembodied breathing is very, very off-putting. Bad. Just bad. Not a fan. So they do actually show, though. So as they kind of like turn around, think they hear something breathing, and then they're like, oh, it must just be kind of my imagination. Um, But then some kind of, we follow, the camera keeps going into the ship, um, and we see that some kind of invisible force has entered the ship and is starting to move things around while the crew is sleeping. Like, I think there was another rather scary moment where we see one of the crewmen, like, sleeping in a bed and, like, the blanket is pulled down, you know, by something. Oh, Um, yeah. And I think it maybe even wakes him up. He's, you know, that feeling of, like, I have the sense that there was something here, but I don't see anything, so I guess I'll just go back to sleep. Um, the next day, uh, when everyone wakes up, they discover that the communications array that they had been working on, um, has been, uh, sabotaged. And so Mm. this is going to, ironically, uh, and especially when the reveal comes, this is extra ironic. Um, now they're going to end up having to stay on the planet even longer to, to fix this issue and to like go on from there. Um, mm-hmm. back at Morbius's house, um, like basically Leslie Nielsen and the character Doc have come, uh, to speak to Morbius, um, and basically to let him know that like now they're going to be here even a bit longer, but instead of finding him, uh, Leslie Nielsen finds Altera, uh, swimming in the nude, um, in, I don't know, it wasn't like a pool, but it was like a very small 
like fake pond, like a pond? Maybe, or something. Yeah. Um, and he's very flustered by this, and even more so because when she sees him, she get she gets out of the water and is again because she's not been raised into feeling that this is anything wrong or to be concerned about. She's just completely nude, like casually walking over to get her towel. Um, she's not hiding anything. Um, he turns his... That makes me a little nervous again of that father. I'm oh, no. Lie. I just, I really can't, I can't like I know, we don't go have to go there, but it makes me nervous. Um, <laughs> so then she dries off again very casually. He's turned around um, for her modesty, but I guess more his modesty, to be honest. Um, and then she's like, kind of like, well, I'm glad you're here because, um, I've gotten this new dress and needless to say, um, it's extremely floor length. It's quite a lot more coverage. Um, <laughs> and again, I really like this. Altera reveals, uh, that she's tried kissing every single one of the men on the crew, <laughs> With the exception of Leslie Nielsen. And she feels kind of let down because she hasn't really enjoyed the experience of kissing any of them. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I was like, this is really quite, I don't know if it's progressive per se in terms of a woman's sexuality in this movie, but like it was I don't interesting. Know. I think it. It is interesting, but where like I had for kind of forgotten about a lot of this, but what I can see in the notes, like where it goes, I think could be seen as progressive or it could be seen as setting people up for something that is untrue. Well or yeah. acting like if you don't enjoy like you must to the, every kiss must feel magical right, or something. Right. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if, so just to follow this along, so then eventually, and it's a very 50s thing, they're kind of like seeming to not quite yell at each other, but like have some weird tension, and then all <laughs> of a sudden they're kissing. And um, yeah. that's when it seems that she really starts to enjoy that. Um, and... And I think it's probably fair to say that, like, um, well, on the one hand, maybe kissing is physically enjoyable under any circumstance and with any person. Um, I think it's also fair to say mm. that, like, if you don't really like the person, then the, the experience course, might course. not be very great. <laughs> like, of course. Oh, my gosh. Yes, of course. And there are people who are just, like, legit terrible kissers. Right. But, like, but I think it does, it may be, like, with, and not really. This is, like, very nitpicky. But, like, maybe a little bit, like, calls people out who want to just kiss a bunch of people and not care about if it's, like, magical or not. Well, right. I don't think. I know that's not what they were yeah, going for. I, but like, Yeah, I think. My interpretation from fifties standards, it was it was pretty progressive. Yeah, I guess my interpretation was that like let's imagine that every guy she kissed was like technically proficient at it and wasn't a bad kisser, <laughs> and so she was just doing some kind of experimenting, which is fair enough. And yeah. in the process of that, she was like, 
I kind of thought this would be more exciting than it's turned out to be. And Mm -hmm. again, because she doesn't have any experience of human interaction really of any kind, um, she maybe didn't know that you kind of want some kind of spark before kissing someone, right? And so she was just doing it and kind of maybe expecting that doing it would make you feel something, which sometimes can happen. Um, But I kind of am of the school of like, I think you need a bit of interest before or else it's probably not going to go much of anywhere um, in terms of your own personal enjoyment of the experience. (laughs) Like, So anyway, uh, they immediately fall in love um, as a result of this kiss. Um, Although maybe it's not so immediate. It's unclear to me how much time they've spent on this planet. Um, so maybe there's been more time to build up some sort of romance. Um, as they're kissing, however, things start to go awry. And the real story as to why this is a forbidden planet starts to come to the fore. Um, a tiger tries to attack uh, the two of them. <laughs> and Altera is unable to kind of speak to it. This is something that we saw when she's introduced initially that she, for some reason, can like control and speak with tigers the animals on the planet like not just tigers like all of them and that Mm -hmm. as far as i recall was never explained as to why she has that particular talent um Mm -hmm. in the end uh leslie nielsen has to vaporize the thing um with his blaster and altera is really puzzled um and it's interesting she's not like sad that this tiger died which I would expect, like, you call all of the animals of this planet your friends. You you knew you, earlier in the movie, you introduced this tiger as like a pal. And now it's dead. And you don't, you're only confused about why it didn't respond to you. you. You don't seem to have any sadness about its death, which I found rather strange. Um... Mm-hmm. So, but nonetheless, Leslie Nielsen already seems to have started working something out about the mysteries of this planet. And so he takes Doc with him and they go into Morbius's study where they find a strange paper with strange writing on it. Morbius. <laughs> Always. Yep. Morbius then comes out from like kind of the other side of the room and they explain that the communications array they were making has been destroyed by an unseen force. And when that happens, Morbius feels like he has to tell them what's been going on. And so Mm -hmm. he basically explains that um, a million years ago or wait hold on a second um yeah oh some time ago long long ago there was a species of alien that lived on this planet altair five or four or whatever it is i can't remember what the uh altair four um so Mm -hmm. on altair four there was a species of aliens called the krell who lived there 
and they were mm-hmm. one million years ahead of human beings. So whoa, and and I don't many and they, that was like long ago. So um, basically, yeah. they were traveling around space. They fu- they went to Earth themselves and brought back samples, which is why. Um, this planet, Altair 4, has certain animals and plant life that appears quite similar to Earth animals and plant life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Morbius and this crew of colonists showed up, Morbius found um, kind of old texts of theirs. And because he's a philologist, he eventually figured out <laughs> how to read their language. And Mm -hmm. actually weirdly similar to Arrival, once he started figuring out their language, Mm. it fundamentally changed him in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, And it's because of his ability to understand their language that he was able to make Robbie the robot. Um, Oh. Yeah. And so as he is um explaining all of this he also says so in the process of my study of their old texts and i don't mean texts on a phone i mean like texts like documents um (laughs) just for clarity's sake it's like oh man can you imagine if someone were to excavate my old texts and be like oh she sounds like a real annoying Mm. asshole most of the time (laughs) oh my god um no i don't think anybody would want that um so As a result of this study, he discovered that 200,000 years in the past, the entire civilization all over the planet was wiped out in a 24-hour period. Whoa. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, And he's like, and I've never, for all that I've, like, been studying, I've never really been able to figure out what happened, like, what, like, they, and he says, like, they have all this incredible technology. They were so advanced. So I can't imagine the thing that would have happened that would have killed literally everybody in 24 hours. Um, this is when he then invites them down to the basement of his house, basically, where um, he says that there's a Krell lab that remains. And so this is when we learn that also, like, so we know from the beginning of the movie that the, the planet has no s- structures on the surface anymore. But mm-hmm. all of the like subterranean structures that the Krell made still are there and intact. So um, that's where okay. Morbius has been disappearing to quite often is, is this special lab under the ground. Um, Okay. And so again, this is what I mean by like the language fundamentally changing him. When he takes them down to the basement, he shows them this thing that he says for the Krell, this was basically like a toy, like an educational toy. Mm-hmm. And he calls it a plastic educator, which I don't really know why it would be called that. But basically, it's yeah. a weird helmet that comes down from the ceiling that you put on your head. And I can't remember if it's got like little electrodes or what, but like you put that on your head and then there's this like weird like column at the center of a table and the column has like markings on it. And depending on where this like meniscus line goes, like because you can technically control the level of like 
um, it's not really liquid, but like you're controlling the level that this arrow is going up and down in this cylinder based on the power of your mind. Um, okay. And so the higher that you can raise the arrow, the stronger your mind is. And uh, Morbius can raise the arrow kind of a lot. And he says that took me a really long time to be able to do. Um, and that in particular, that when he used this machine for the first time, it like zapped him in such a way that then he was Whoa. like unconscious for like a day and a half. Um, Jesus. And then when he came to, his brain had been rewritten to better like one understand crow language but just generally kind of be the smartest human that exists basically um whoa yeah so um this is when in the so he's so once he gets supercharged with his intelligence um he continues to investigate this issue of like how did they all die in one day and he discovers that one of the kind of final projects the scientists of the civilization were working on was something that was meant to move them beyond what he calls physical instrumentality. Do you know what I mean when I say that? No, say the words again. Physical <laughs> instrumentality. No. Okay. Um, I didn't really know either, and I, I, but I was gonna try to come up with something clever, but I wasn't able to. At the, when I watched this part, I was like, I don't entirely know what that means, but I, I think as we move on to the through the movie, we'll discover this. I think what it means is that the Krell wanted to be able to exist outside of their bodies, basically render the physical body mm. irrelevant. Um, okay. And there's some kind of intimations that perhaps the Krell would, were not what we would identify as physically attractive as humans. Um, because when they walk through all the Krell constructed spaces, the, the hallways are these weird, like, diamond shapes so like pointy at the top wide at the side and then coming back down to the floor and I think one of the characters says something that implies that they might be like weird sort of like blob shape where they're like thickest around the middle okay so I mean I don't know if that's true but I suppose if say what we're imagining is a entire civilization made of blob people um maybe being a blob <laughs> that sounds blob a t an entire civilization of blob people sounds like 2022 yeah i mean it is for sure definitely <laughs> um uh, just look at the obesity crisis anywhere in the world i mean um sorry that's latest i shouldn't say that but I'm talking about actual blobs. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't even mean like physically. I just meant sort of oh, in it. Oh, yeah. And anyone can have a blobish mind, I'd say. Oh, or yeah. and I think most A blobish do. heart <laughs> or, you know, that's yes, for sure. That's more what I meant. I meant more like, yeah. But I guess what I mean is like what I was picturing 
when I heard that was like, okay, so maybe there are these entities that physically getting around is not easy or pleasant, you know? Um, and so maybe that's part of the drive to move beyond the physical realm, right? Like we want to be able mm-hmm. to project our mental desires into the physical. And that's the thing is what this project whatever it was that the Krell are working on because that's what ultimately Morbius shows them is that there's this big massive project that's happening under the ground and he couldn't quite work out exactly what it was but that it was tied to this desire to um, move beyond the physical on the one hand you know not be kind of connected to your own body in the same way but also to like physicalize and manifest your mental kind of desires in a like right mm. like so like okay so my physical mm-hmm. body is a blob sitting in a room connected to some kind of a machine mm. but what i'm experiencing mm-hmm. is that i get to live in the body of a cheetah or something like that Whoa. Um, that's what yeah. that's what i think they mean here about moving beyond physical instrumentality um okay meanwhile back at the ship the crew has put a fence around the ship Um, to protect them from these invisible intruders. Um, But the fence um, is some kind of like laser fence or whatever. And so something tries to get through. And when it does, it shorts out the entire fence. Um, And so then the fence is no longer functional. And this is when we see footsteps in the sand walking um, Mm -hmm. up to the ship. And then terrifyingly, as it walks closer to the ship, um, and in fact, it's so heavy, whatever this thing is, is that as it's walking into the ship, the stairs leading in are bending under its weight. Um, Terrifying. Yeah, not good. And then worse yet, from the perspective of the crew, we hear a blood-curdling scream come out from the ship. Um, Yikes. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at Morbius's house, now that uh, Leslie Nielsen and Doc have learned all of this stuff, they're like, okay, so we really need to tell everybody back at the planet, United Planets headquarters about this technology and what we learned here. And um, Morbius is like, Absolutely not. Um, humanity is not ready for any of this technology, its sophistication, what it might be able to do. Um, I, you know, I had to basically short circuit my brain to even sort of understand it. Uh, this just isn't what we should be doing for people. Um, uh-huh. This is when um, Leslie Nielsen gets a call from his crew to say that one of the men has been killed by an invisible force. And Morbius says ominously, it's started again. Um, yeah, not good. Uh, and this is now kind of like the climax of the film, uh, or working toward it anyway. Um, Leslie Nielsen and Doc return to the ship to start investigating what's gone on. Um, They basically, they've taken um, a mold of the footsteps that were left in the sand only to discover Mm -hmm. that the footprint that they 
create out of that is something that couldn't exist in nature. Um, nice. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and a cool kind of foreshadowing to where we're going um, because... The, and they even have, they again, the props in this movie are kind of interesting what they decide to do. So they've created this fake mold of a fake footprint. And it did look quite intriguing because it looks like kind of a mixture of like what you would imagine a dragon's claw might look like and like a <laughs> elephant foot and like all. And it was massive as well. Um, yeah. But basically, I don't really recall this part, but well, the main important thing is that the doctor says like this has like all of these different elements of different types of feet of different animals. And there is as far as I know that <laughs> this wouldn't exist even on this planet. This mm-hmm. wouldn't exist, which is kind of, again, foreshadowing for later. Um, yeah. Morbius comes to the ship to plead with them to leave um, that they're in danger, that this is indicative of what's about to happen. Um, and basically says like, well, if you insist on staying, you know, the blood's on your hands effectively. Um, that night, the crew is now even more kind of, um, uh, what's the word? Like regaled or like filled with um, different types of ordnance and machinery and weapons uh, to protect themselves against this invisible creature. Um, the creature comes anyway. Uh, they can track it sort of on radar somehow. I'm not sure how, but of course it's still invisible. Um, this is when we get, I think to me, like the most kind of impressive special effect of this movie, which is where... They've reset up the fence again, like the kind of laser fence. And when the invisible Mm. animal or whatever it is comes into the fence, it starts creating all these sparks. And then we actually see kind of like a silhouette of the creature through the sparks created by the fence shorting out. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't remember this part either. Yeah, well, and I remember now on the credits, they did give a special mention to, like, a Disney animator at one point. They were like, this Mm. guy came over from Disney to do some of the special effects here. And I have to assume that this was what they were talking about. Like, I think they must have used animation to create this image of, like, that's an invisible creature. The outline of... Like, uh, it's being revealed by this light from something else. Yeah. then things really get bad um, because they start shooting at the invisible creature, which makes it rather upset. Um, and so it starts killing crew members. And we do get to see, at, now admittedly, as I said, I thought it would look terrifying. The way the special effects worked in this movie, it was more comedic. Um, but mm. we do see people getting, like, pulled up by one leg into the air, ripped apart, you know, like that kind of thing. I do. I definitely don't remember this because I feel like I would, like, that sounds memorable and I don't remember it. Yeah. So that, so things are really starting to go from bad to worst. Um, as a result of this encounter, Leslie Nielsen is like, we need to evacuate, get everyone off the planet. Um... We're not, we're not paid enough to figure out why this monster exists. We're just getting out. Um, and intriguingly, he's like, 
I need to also take Altera and Morbius as well. Like, regardless of whether they agree or not, they need to be evacuated as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Morbius is clearly already anticipated this move because he has barricaded himself in his uh, lab, in the Prell lab under the ground. Um, mm-hmm. While uh, Leslie Nielsen is talking to Altera, Doc runs down to the lab uh, in some sort of frenzy, and it's unclear why he does that. But when he comes back, he turns to Leslie Nielsen and in his, like, dying breath is, like, um, the because he says he used the special education machine. And so unlike mm-hmm. Morbius, who was eventually able to survive the brain supercharging, this guy is about, he's on the verge of death because of it. Um, mm. But having connected to it, he now understands what has happened on the planet. And he says something about how the machine that the Krell were making at the end of their civilization brought to life, and this is a direct quote, monsters from the id. Yikes. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, So this is, um, it's interesting to imagine this happening after the year 2200, when id and ego are very old-timey uh, psychological concepts um, that, were, yeah. that were kind of new in the 50s. Um, but basically, yeah. the id is your subconscious. Um, right. So, like, all the kind of weird, chaotic thoughts. It's like your dreams yeah. coming to life. Yeah. Anything that's... Like, our brain clearly is operating... That would be bad for yeah, me. Yeah, at various levels, but, like, what... Um, psychologists at this time called the ego is your conscious mind, which is like, you know, that's where my, I'm thinking about my decisions and, and, and it's vague, yeah. vaguely logical. Right. Um, whereas the id is just like all of like the inchoate, like stuff floating around your brain and your personality. Um, yeah. Okay. So if monsters from your id, appeared oh, in no. reality what might they be oh god i don't know i mean and i think that's part of the thing that um th- mine would all be annoying versions of people i already know probably i mean certainly that would be a part of it i guess <laughs> i mean but this is also the thing that um at the t- in the 50s psychologists said is that often like your ego is very much not aware of what your id is doing so i think mm. it's actually rather hard to imagine like what is it's that, different than just what's in your right dreams or like something. what is that underlying stuff that i'm that kind of motivates yeah. me but i don't entirely know what it is i mean mm-hmm. let's mm. face it i think that's the whole thing is like the id well i'll say this i think often it's portrayed in movies just as this one that the when the id is released it's nothing but kind of negative stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't think that's probably true. It's probably some negative stuff, some positive stuff, and some neutral stuff. I feel like it's probably, yeah, it's probably just kind of chaotic. So when something is chaotic, I think maybe that is seen as negative or that yeah, is seen that's as like enough. out of control. Yeah, I mean, I think a, man, a physical manifestation 
of anyone's id. This actually kind of reminds me of our talking about coherence. Like, I think the physical manifestation would be maybe something that looks like you in some way. Oh, um, creepy. Ooh. But like the most, like the most chaotic, chaotic, version. unintelligible, you know, like um, I'm almost thinking of it maybe being something like you would. Like zombie-like? Well, I, I, I almost think of it as like, imagine you and then just imagine like seeing the different parts of you like shift so like one arm is animated your head is in black and white like one one leg looks Whoa. like a zombie leg one you know like and so then you're just like e um and it's and it's happening mm. constantly like all the bits of you are just yuck rolling around in this way and maybe even the form itself kind of like Maybe sometimes it's shuffling along. Maybe sometimes it's running super fast. Maybe sometimes it's like dragging itself on the ground. You know, like, um, I think it would be very unsettling to truly see. And definitely not nearly as like the way this movie sets it up, which is your id manifests in this like monstrous form, albeit invisible, it's monstrous, you know? Um, Yeah. So needless to say... Um, Leslie Nielsen finally figures out what has happened and why the planet has, is as dangerous as it is. And it's actually nothing to do with like the natural environment of the planet, but rather that this massive machine that the Krell made was actually the machine that they were using to try and move away from their physical instrumentality. Basically, the Mm. machine was designed to focus their thoughts. Because, again, we have to remember the Krell's brains are stronger than ours and more developed than ours. So um, what this kind of machine was doing was providing the necessary energy so that you could focus your thoughts and then also manifest them physically. That was the point. So making Mm -hmm. your thoughts become real. And um, this is also when Leslie Nielsen is like, and Morbius, you must know whose thoughts these are, right? And he's like, what are you talking Mm -hmm. about? He's like, the only person prior to my now dead colleague who ever connected to any of the Krell technology was you. So... All of these things, all of the death, all of the death of my crewmates, all of the death of your fellow colonists from 20 years ago, all of it was because of your unexplored negative feelings that then got manifested by this machine. Like, without your knowledge, but nonetheless, this is what's happened. Um, And Morbius is, of course, skeptical at first, but ultimately sees the truth of what Leslie Nielsen is saying. Um, And part of what drives this realization is that the monster has now started attacking his own home. Um, And we're at a kind of major crisis point. And basically, Leslie Nielsen is like, you have to bring your your subconscious under control. 
this thing is going to kill us. You know, like, ima- like whether it's imaginary or not doesn't really matter anymore. It's physically enough real that it is going to rip us apart. So you have to do something about this. Um, and so uh, Morbius basically has to... Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting kind of metaphor for psychology. He has to accept these negative yeah. elements about himself. And when he does, the monster does seem to settle down. But then Morbius is like, well, I'm tied to this planet and I don't know that there's any way for this really to ever be solved. So you guys have to get out of here. I'm going to set the auto-destruct sequence and I will kind of destroy all of the Krell technology on this planet with that auto-destruct. But I'll wait. Um, in like, basically, he says, now that the auto-destruct sequence is set, you guys have 24 hours to get your ship at least... 100 million miles away or else you will be taken out with the destruction of the planet. Um, Yeah, pretty rough. So needless to say, everyone gets onto the C-57D, including Altera. Um, And the final moments of the movie are the crew who have been going like bandits to get out to the 100 million mile mark in time. They do that. And then the entire crew put on the view screen and they watch as Altera 4, the planet, blows up with with Morbius on it. And that is the film. Wow. It's a lot. It is a lot. And also... Not a lot at the same time. Yeah, it's, I mean... Um, not not to, like, slide right into yawns and eye rolls, but this was a as new as a her for me. <laughs> it was a very slow-moving thing, which is very typical of Star Trek of any persuasion. So that works. Um, so, yeah, let's do yawns and eye rolls. Yawns. One yawn. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I was watching every second. Ten yawns were like, of course my eyes were off it because they were shut. What would you give it? <laughs> okay, well, I don't think I was asleep, so I'll give it that much credit. But I think like a nine, like I was bored and it was a it was a slog for me. This one was hard. And the only reason I don't remember the exact runtime is because we watched it so long ago that I've just like wiped it from my brain. Yeah, that's a good but point. Let's it was see. too long. Uh, let's see what... Uh, runtime for too long is all I'm gonna guess. I mean, mm. almost anything is too long. I wanna long say for like you. 156. Oh no, it's only 138. True. Oh god, it felt longer. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a slog for me. Yeah, so I'll say nine. Yeah, I, w- I will be a little bit more generous and say seven. Um, but I similarly struggled, even though I really enjoyed it. I struggled to maintain eye contact with this movie. The pacing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that was especially because whenever I did watch this movie, I was really exhausted from work and stuff. And so I... I, 
that I doesn't do, help. You need you needed a little couple more explosions. Yeah, or I do remember really struggling at a couple points in this movie where I was like, "Tonight's the night. I have to watch this. I am also extremely tired, but like I have to watch this now." And so it was a bit of a um, Herculean effort in that sense. Um, in terms of yeah. uh, eye rolls, one eye roll is this wasn't campy at all. What are you talking about? And 10 eye rolls is like, this is the campiest shit I've ever seen. What would you give it? Um, I mean, I, it was the 50s. I like, you know, I'll give it some slack there. It seems like it's pretty straightforward as far as like sci-fi pieces go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that it was like hugely eye rolly. Um, I guess for me, maybe like a five, like right in the middle, because I don't really know. Like it wasn't eye rolly; it was just a little bit dull. Yeah, I mean, I think I, it would be interesting from what I said at the top of how this is like the first movie that's done a lot of these things. Um, it maybe would have been perceived as quite campy at the time. Um, mm. I think it certainly could be perceived as campy now, but like it doesn't quite seem very fun like camp usually has a bit more of a no i feel like campy should be more fun um, a fun element that isn't here um and it was like it it's well respected so i guess probably yeah i would say a five right down the middle like it certainly has novelty Mm -hmm. i'll say that it's got some novel concepts and ideas that really made a splash with people clearly um but it, it was also meant to be a serious movie. So that kind of takes it away from like the super eye roll territory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So finally, did you like this and would you recommend it? Mm, nah. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I did not. I did not care for it. And no, I don't think I would recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I enjoyed it, and I think I would do a recommend to someone who said, oh, I really like science fiction movies. Um, I'm looking for something that's sort of like a Star Trek episode, but like longer. longer. Yes. I'd say, okay, fine, you go ahead uh, and do Yes, this. if you're a Star Trek person, <laughs> if you would describe yourself as a Star Trek person in any capacity, I think this is worth a watch, for sure. Um, yeah. So that's a recommend. If you're somebody who likes classic movies, that's a recommend. Um, if you're someone who... So basically, if you're big old nerdo, go for it. Anyone else, you might be bored. Yes. If you are someone who is more of a like, I like <laughs> science fiction and maybe want to deepen my appreciation for the origins of that genre, recommend. Um, but definitely, this is not a broad-based for everyone. <laughs> situation no. <laughs> no. um well then even so i would say this has been a success um it's been a pleasure as always <laughs> thank you amy i am sarah and we will see you next week in space thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of see you next week in space. This is a production by Amy and Sarah Walsh with artwork provided by Riley Brown. If you'd like to learn more about our show, please check us out at seeyounextweekinspace.com or follow us on Instagram at seeyounextweekinspace. Until the next one.